How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the Prince of Peace, that he has sent his preachers of peace, declaring the gospel of peace to us. We pray now that as we consider these words that belong to you, that you would instruct us by your Spirit, convict us, and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So why was it? During the Protestant Reformation, the pulpit was moved front and center. And why is it that in our own church we profess, through our larger catechism, that the Spirit of God makes not only the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of salvation? We're going to answer that from the text, I hope, this morning as we consider these verses there in Romans 10, 14 through 15. And remember what we've seen thus far. The Apostle Paul has been arguing that salvation is not by works, not through works of the law, but through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw last time, he shows here that salvation was never intended to be exclusively or only for the Jewish people but that there would come a time where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would go to the nations and thus go to the Gentiles. And so in this chapter, he refers to Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Whoever believes on the Lord shall be saved. And, and so the summary of that passage of Scripture, Joel 2, is this really in verse 28. God promised back then, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so at the day of Pentecost... Gentiles are speaking in tongues. They're coming to the Lord Jesus there, all sorts of people. And Peter stands up and preaches that sermon and says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so the salvation of God offered through Jesus Christ is to go to all nations. Paul proved that from this text. And so what we can say then is that there is hope for all men, for any man, woman, or child who puts his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter your life circumstance, no matter your pedigree, your ethnicity, or even your degree of rebellion against God, there is hope. And we saw that. And how can I say that? Well, whether you've committed the error, like so many Jews have, that of self-righteousness, or whether you've committed the error, as so many Gentiles have, of full-blown hedonism, what is said about the Christians at Corinth can be true of you. And if you're a Christian, it is true of you. He lists there in 1 Corinthians 6 that litany of terrible and filthy sins, and he tells the Corinthians, of such were some of you. But you were washed but you are sanctified, you are justified by the Spirit of our God through the Lord Jesus Christ and to the glory of God the Father. 
And so last time we saw here in Romans 10, especially in verse 9, a wonderful promise. And it says there that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your own heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so one must make this great confession of faith that Jesus is the Lord, that he is Yahweh, Jehovah God, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. But not only that, like Doubting Thomas would say, Jesus is my Lord and my God. And we must believe in our own heart that God has raised him from the dead. Not just the resurrection. We saw what Paul was doing there. The resurrection testifies to the world that Jesus is who he said he was. That the scriptures that talked about the Messiah are fulfilled in him because he is Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. So if you make that confession and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, have faith in the Son of God, you will be saved. And that is glorious. That is good news. That is gospel. And so that ought to uh, bring joy to our hearts this morning as we just consider uh, the free offer of the gospel of God's grace through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then in our text for this morning in verses 14 and 15, Paul really, he shifts gears and he starts to talk about the necessity of evangelism and gospel preaching in particular. In fact, he makes a very powerful argument for gospel preaching. We could say here that Paul teaches us the primacy of preaching, its significance, its importance, period. We're going to see why it is so important. And yet, as we do this, we might think about our own day and time because preaching has fallen upon hard times. It's been this way for years now, if not decades. There may be several reasons for that. Let me just list a couple as to why I think that is. Years ago, a guy by the name of Neil Postman wrote a book that some of you have read. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in the introduction, he mentions two novels, one that is, uh, has made something of a revival as of late, and uh, that is Orwell's 1984, which talks about Big Brother and totalitarianism. But he also mentions Huxley's uh, Brave New World and how in that book it's a little bit different than um, Orwell's book. And here's what Postman wrote. Listen carefully, please. He said, Postman said this, In Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. And I don't even know if Postman was a Christian, but that surely sounds prophetic to be a book that's 20 years old, if not 30. I can't remember. Well, I know it was around in the mid-90s, so there you go. We don't have enough time to explore the reasons as to why Uh, preaching has fallen on hard times, but let me just mention one other thing to you, and that is 2 Timothy 4. Paul is describing to Timothy his duties as a pastor. He left Timothy there in Ephesus to be a pastor, and he gives his responsibilities to them, and the primary one, I think, is this. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, 
convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so in 2 Timothy 4, we find that biblical preaching is a non-negotiable for the pastor, for the church of Jesus Christ. It should have a primary place at least in her worship services. And in our text this morning, we find out really why that is. Why it is that preaching is valued so highly to God. And therefore, why it should be valued highly to us, God's people. I simply want to talk about these verses this morning. I should say preach about them uh, by thinking about discussing two headings. I want to talk about the necessity of biblical preaching and the nature of biblical preaching. So first of all, then, the necessity of biblical preaching. Paul here lays down a very tight-knit, tightly-knit argument. And I'm going to try to spell it out for you, these um, steps, if you will, these propositions. He says, first of all, that men are saved only when they call upon the Lord. Men are saved only when they call upon the Lord. That's there in verse 11 as well as verse 13. In verse 11, he says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. So there must be faith in the Lord Jesus in order to not be put to, to shame at the day of judgment. If you'll notice in verse 13, he says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's the principle. One must call on the name of the Lord. One must call on the name of the Lord Jesus, that name that's given above every name, Philippians 2 tells us. Second, he says here, men must believe the Lord before they will call upon the Lord. That that makes sense, right? One must have faith in the Lord before He will express that faith verbally and therefore call on the name of the Lord. That's in verse 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? The implication is if they believe, then they will call on Him. Number three, men must hear the Lord before they will believe the Lord. That's there in verse 14. It says, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? They must hear something from someone. And so he continues. He says, men must hear the Lord before they believe in the Lord. And the sequence goes something like this if you put it in reverse order. Reverse order. Um, First of all, there must be a preacher or a messenger sent, and so that preacher then must preach the gospel. That gospel must be heard, it must be believed, and then those who believe in that gospel call upon the Lord's name to be saved. Hopefully you follow that. You can see that there in verses 14, really 13 uh, through 15. And in Paul's argument, there really is a crux to it all. 
at least implied, if not stated, plainly. There's something implicit and there's something stated here. It's, it's this. Men must hear the Lord Himself before they will call upon Him. Men must hear the Lord Himself before they call upon Him. You say, well, Kevin, does God speak today? I mean, I've been taught um, from, from biblical teachers that God only speaks a certain way today. He doesn't speak audibly. I know. So the question is, does God speak today? Well, well yes. Think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. So creation proclaims the existence of God. And we call that a type of revelation. God reveals Himself through His creation. We call that general revelation. So whether we look through a telescope or a microscope, we see evidence of the existence of an almighty, all-powerful, all-wise living God. And so we can't escape the knowledge of God. And then Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And it mentions the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. And we call that special revelation, the Word of God. So there's general revelation, special revelation, creation, the Word of God. And so, yes, God speaks today, but I want you to see what Paul says here. Because we're going to flesh this out a bit. If you look there at verse 14... Uh, the second part of the verse, it says, And how shall they believe in Him? The KJV says, How shall they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? The ESV says, Of whom they have never heard. The NKJV says, Of whom they have never heard. And this is one of those days where I would like the New American Standard. Because it says this, how shall they believe in Him, what? Whom they have never heard. And the Greek goes something like this, And how shall they have faith in the one whom they have not heard? And so you ask, does God really speak today? Well, not in the burning bush, not in signs and wonders, not in visions and all these things, but through His Word, yes, of course. But, but there's a little more to it here. I mean, do people really call on the Lord Jesus after they hear the Lord Jesus today? You say, how is it that Christ can speak today? His lips are in heaven. We don't believe in the omnipresence, the ubiquity of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, in fact, we confess every week that Jesus is where? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's where his lips are. I don't, I don't mean that to be sarcastic. It's true. Wherever God's throne is in the heavens, Christ does speak in a certain way today. And it goes something like this. Christ Himself then initiates a saving relationship with men through His Word, especially through its preaching. Christ Himself, the Lord, initiates a saving relationship with men through His Word, especially through its preaching. 
And that's what we teach as a denomination, as a church, because that's what our larger catechism says. And, you know, if you go back to the 5th century, probably, maybe uh, before that, Aurelius Augustine, uh, the North African, he lived at the end of the late 300s, early 400s. And um, he gives an account of his conversion. His mom prayed for him for years. She, she gave him scripture, all these things. He lived a life of lasciviousness, all this. And finally, one day, he felt the guilt of his own sin. And there's some children playing. And I guess it's in the Latin. Uh, they were saying something like, tole lege, pick up and read. And so he did. And he turned to Romans. And it says there, um, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And so he was converted by reading the Bible. Maybe some of you were converted that way. Men are converted through gospel discussions. We could say preaching with a lowercase p, exhorting, gospel telling. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, there was persecution. And all of the apostles remained at Jerusalem, the officials of the church, the leaders, the preachers, all that. But the church was scattered, and they went out into various parts. And as they went, we were told, Luke tells us, Acts chapter 8, the first eight or so verses, they went about preaching the gospel. So church members did that, and they witnessed for Christ. And then later, here comes Philip, and he officially preaches the gospel, and men are converted. But we see here in our text especially that when the Spirit blesses and when the preacher who is called unto this task preaches faithfully the Word of God, Christ speaks through him. Think about what Jesus said in John 5, 25. He said, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who live or hear will live. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So you don't think I'm crazy. Keep your finger there in Romans 10 and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul tells them, speaking of Jesus, he says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so you can say, Kevin, I can buy that, I believe that. Um, these Ephesians, they heard the gospel, the word of truth, and when they believed it, they were converted. They trusted. And then they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, so look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Just want to point out the context here. Paul is discussing these, these wonderful truths of bringing believing Jew and Gentile, into one body, not two peoples of God, as some have taught. In, in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace. Verse 15, Having abolished in his flesh. So he's talking about Jesus, right? You see that? Well, if you look at verse 16, it continues, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, 
verse 17. Now, here it is. And he. It's capitalized because it's talking about who? Jesus. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Paul says that Jesus came to the Ephesians and preached peace, the gospel, to them. But Jesus never did go to Ephesus. We have no record of that. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, we find, in chapter 19, who went and preached the gospel to these Ephesians. And remember, Paul was called as an apostle in Acts chapter 9. And where was Jesus in Acts chapter 9? He appeared to Paul, but he had already ascended Acts chapter 1 to his throne. And so the point is that Paul went to Ephesus and he opened his lips and he preached the gospel and Christ spoke through Paul and his preaching. Now, Paul was an apostle, no doubt. But still, if we go back to Romans 10... I believe, as do others, that Paul is teaching here that when a man, as we'll see, who is called and faithful to the Word of God preaches the Word, Christ Himself speaks through that Word. And so the old 16th century Swiss Helvetic Confession says that the preaching of the Word of God is what? The Word of God. Now, I'll come back to this again and again. Does that mean that we write down what preachers say and put it in the Bible? No. No, no, no. But I love the way Calvin put it, John Calvin. He's, he's always so just illustrative and pastoral, usually. Can't say always. But he's put it, he said it this way. God deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. And since, I will say this, since the cessation of the office of apostle, there have been no infallible preachers because since that time there have been no inspired preachers. So what I'm saying this morning is is not to say that preachers are infallible. Infallibility left this world with the last apostle. Now, the one thing we do have that is infallible, I better say quickly, is the Word of God. It is the all-authoritative, inspired, and infallible Word from God. As Calvin says, God opens His lips in Holy Scripture. That was the Reformer's view and my view, and hopefully yours, of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an English preacher, a Welsh preacher from the last century, said, true preaching is God acting. When that man, the preacher, faithfully preaches the Word, it is the Word of God. And so we're not saying that men speak ex cathedra, infallible words when they preach, but to the degree that they are faithful to the Bible in their preaching, it is Christ speaking. The Word of Christ. And so when you think about preaching, gospel preaching, and its necessity, 
Maybe you ask the question, why then is there such a low view of preaching in churches today? And why do men not want to hear more preaching in churches today? In fact, it seems that we might want to hear less. I'm not accusing anybody here of that, but, but I do think broadly speaking, that could be the case. Why not want it more? I think it is because one reason could be is because people, Christians, do not understand the nature of biblical preaching, which we'll discuss in a moment. Another reason could be because preachers, so-called, are not truly preaching the Word, or they bore the people of God to death, or they tell stories, and we don't know what preaching is. Well, if this isn't enough to raise the bar on preaching and its value, consider then the nature of biblical preaching. Let's talk about its nature. That's here in the text, I think, as well, at least implied. We should say that biblical preaching is the official, supernatural, and authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. Biblical preaching is the official, supernatural, authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. Now, children, when we say proclamation, that's a big word, I know. It sounds smart saying it, but what, what do we mean? When we talk about proclaiming something or the proclamation of something, we're telling something. We're declaring something. We're saying something that is very important. And so that's what preaching is. It is proclamation, proclaiming what? The Word of God. And what does that mean, that we proclaim the Word of God? Well, in Acts chapter 20, the apostle there, speaking of the Ephesians, he's talking to the elders at Ephesus before he leaves them after three or so years, and he talks about what he did, and he talks about his preaching. And he describes his preaching by using four different phrases, I think, um, given to us by the Holy Spirit to help us to know what preaching is. He says there that, uh, verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also Greeks. Here it is, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little bit of the content of his preaching. In verse 24, at the end, he talks about testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And so he calls it the gospel of grace. Verse 25, he talks about preaching the kingdom of God. And in verse 27, he says this, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so he didn't preach his favorite truths he preached all of the truths found in God's holy word and delivered to him by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talk about what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3. He told the Corinthians, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beloved, may that be true of you and me, and any man who stands at this pulpit or wherever our pulpit is in the future, may it be true of anyone who teaches in this church, 
that he determines to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, to proclaim the gospel of God. Some of you know Dr. Carrick. He was a professor of mine, and he taught us preaching in seminary. And one thing that, that I still remember, he drilled it in, I guess. He, he says, men, if you can preach your sermons in a Jewish synagogue, you have not preached Jesus Christ. To that, I would say, unless they're all converted. <laughs> the, the unbelieving Jews in the synagogue. But you see, you see his point. If you can get away with it. And sometimes that happens. Unfortunately so. Now, the gospel includes discipleship. We've seen that with Paul and his words here. You must confess that Jesus is what? Lord. Your Lord. And as we mentioned last week, that includes our thoughts, 2 Corinthians 10. We must bring every thought captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in this, this epistle. 11 chapters of doctrine, 11 chapters of gospel, and then four or so chapters of application. And so then, we must preach the whole counsel, we must, must preach the Bible, and we must use the Bible the way God intended it. As Jesus says in John 5, it is that which testifies about me. The ultimate message of the Holy Bible is Jesus Christ and all of the implications of Jesus being your Lord. So that's the proclamation of the Word of God. When we talk about its nature, it is also an official proclamation. Preaching, biblically speaking, is the official proclamation of the Word of God. If you see there in verse 15, it says, How shall they preach unless they are what? Sent. And so, in our church, in our circles, we believe in an ordained ministry. And in part, this is why. Well, who sends the man? Well, God calls the man true, but the church officially sanctions that man's calling. They simply recognize that this man is called and gifted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he is sent by the church. And how does that happen? Well, ultimately, it happens by the laying on of hands of the presbytery, 1 Timothy 4.14, and other scriptures like that. So there's, there's a process uh, in our circles trying to apply what we see in Scripture concerning pastors and teachers and evangelists, sending out ministers of word and sacrament, those who officially proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the pattern is a call from God. In case you young men, maybe you're, you're wondering, well, am I called? Will I be called? There's a call, an internal call from God. Again, it's not the burning bush. It's not a vision. It's not those things today. But as Jeremiah put it, there's a fire in, in your bones. Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel of God. And so you have this desire to teach. You're gifted at understanding and putting the scriptures together, uh, explaining them, applying them. And so you have this call, and, and that, that seed grows in a man. And then it's, it's recognized by the church, and I would say the local church, wherever that man is and whatever body he's affiliated with, the, the people of the church start to see that, and, and ultimately the presbytery sees it, and they approve and confirm what the church sees. They recognize God's calling 
on his life, his giftedness, and they say, yes, he, he's called, and we're going to send him out to preach. And so as I, I say that quickly, let me mention two things. Uh, number one, this is an outworking of the biblical form of church government. Christ himself is the king and head of his church, right? And so it's Christ who gives gifts to his church, Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and the foundation of the church was laid with apostles and prophets. And so once the foundation is laid, those offices are no more. But we have evangelists, we have pastor, teacher, and so Christ still gives those gifts to his people and his church. And so that is recognized ultimately by his under-shepherds, the elders of the church. And we talk about teaching and ruling elders, and I guess this is also a church government sermon. But you get the point. Christ is over his under-shepherds who approve such men for ministry. And that's how we try to do it in, in our church. And also, let me say this. Lest anyone think that this removes the say from a congregation concerning a preacher, a pastor, who is actually sent. Just think about this. Who is it that nominates and votes on those who will be ruling and teaching elders? It's the congregation, biblically speaking. And so what the elders are approving, they're doing on behalf of the congregation. And when a pastor goes to a church, he's not appointed. This isn't a a bishopric in that sense, a hierarchical form of church government. No, a pastor is called to a local church by the members of that church who are eligible to vote and do such. And so this is an official proclamation. There is ordination in the Old Testament, and we see ordination in the New Testament. And so it says here, how shall they preach unless they are sent? It is an official proclamation. So let me get technical one more time. So in, in our denomination, if a man is under care for the gospel ministry, he's studying, um, he, he may exhort in our churches. We, we have Nick here who does that. And so in our form of government, we talk about exhorting because officially he's not preaching because he hasn't been ordained. He has to get licensed. And if a church calls him, and he passes his ordination exams, the church will ordain him. And then he preaches the gospel. Actually, he preaches when he's licensed. The point is we, we make a distinction in our circles. And I'll come back to that in a moment. You might have another question or two about it. So it is an official proclamation. It's also a supernatural proclamation. We see that here. If you look at verse 14, um, there's that, that pronoun and the the, the preposition of that should not be there. The pronoun should. In verse 14, halfway down, it says, And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Men need to hear Jesus before they call on Jesus. And how do they hear Jesus? Through the official preaching of his word. Sure, by reading the word of God. We've already said that as well. But when we talk about biblical gospel preaching, we're talking about the act wherein Christ himself speaks to his sheep and therefore they are saved, those who believe on him. 
This is the act by which the gospel is officially preached and men and women and children are saved from the power and the penalty and the presence one day of their sins. And this is that message and that act with which the Holy Spirit moves and acts according to God's election and timing and makes people born again and takes out their heart of stone and puts in their heart of flesh so that what Ezekiel did is true of preachers today. God said, can these bones live? You know, Lord preached to them. He preached to those, those, the valley of dry bones and they came alive. The Spirit worked and that is a glorious thing. It is supernatural. I don't know about every person, every Christian's conversion here. I know some, and I want to hear more. I want to hear how you came to Christ. You know what? You may have not had the Damascus Road Hell's Angel experience. Paul wasn't in the Hell's Angels, by the way. He was, a, he was a religious hypocrite. He was in the church, the Old Testament church. Anyway, you get it. But maybe you lived out in the world and you did ugly, awful things and God miraculous, miraculously and drastically saved you. Praise God. Praise God. But maybe you grew up in a Christian home, going to church week after week after week. How did you become a Christian? Well, I'll share with you how I became a Christian. I grew up in the church until my mom no longer fought with me. She let me stay at home, and I went by the way of the world. And then I went through a circumstance of providence, and the, my parents' the final divorce, their third one, and all of these things. And so I started going back to church, and a few weeks, if not a few months later, after hearing sermon after sermon after sermon, the pastor who is faithful to preach the Word of God, at least the gospel, I finally sat there, and I, I, I found myself within saying, yes. Yes, that's true. I believe it. Jesus is my Lord. And I, I was 18, probably. And so I had to get baptized again because it was the Baptist church. That's the way it works. But I was converted under the preaching of the word. Praise, praise be to God. And so what a privilege this is for those of us who get to prepare sermons week after week and preach the word of God. And finally, it is an official and supernatural proclamation. And since that is true, it is an authoritative proclamation. The preacher is a herald. He speaks on behalf of the Lord, the living God, His King, who is the King of kings, who is His King and His Lord. And therefore, we see in verse 15, it is a glorious proclamation. In verse 15, it says, as it is written, quoting from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, back before there was um, all the news outlets, the internet, TV, electricity, the telephone, all these things, there were heralds. And they would take the king's message into the market, into the public square, and preach the message that the king gave. And so, often, that message was, the war is over. It's done. 
Ours is the victory. And that's the message, the gospel of of peace that the preacher preaches. And so the, the preacher, on behalf of Christ, gets to tell people the battle is over. The victory has been won. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered Satan. And guess what? He conquered your sin. And He's here to rescue you and deliver you from a life of self-righteousness and hedonism and sin and hell forever. And so it is glorious when we think about what preaching is. It's, it's nature and it's necessity. So as we think about this morning, let me make quickly four applications. Number one, in chapter 9, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about Israel's rejection and how God is working on this principle of election and predestination. So he's talking about the sovereignty of God. In chapter 10, as we've seen, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. He prays for them. He talks about the necessity of evangelism and gospel preaching, human activity, the responsibility, and the calling of the church of Christ to do these things. And why do I mention that? Because if we think that because God is sovereign, that we don't have to do anything, we are greatly mistaken and disagree with the Apostle Paul. God's sovereignty and salvation does not negate our responsibility to evangelize the world. Second, how then, or rather, we see here the importance of biblical preaching. There is no excuse for sloppy preparation. I I get it, some men might be boring. Some men are more gifted than others. However, as long as the man is faithful to the text, it is the word of God he preaches. And so then, do you make an effort to prepare for hearing the word? We talk about conscionable hearing, that we actively sit and listen, seek to understand prayerfully and make application. And do we prepare the night before when we know the Lord's day is coming? Or do we stay up all night or do something so that we are sleepy and tired in worship? I've had people who work shift work, and I understand, I get that. And they they are faithful to come to church, even though they fall asleep. And praise God that they're there attempting. And for those of you who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, how many sermons have you heard? Are you ignoring God? Are you ignoring Christ? Don't do that. Flee to the Savior. So we see this, the importance of biblical preaching. Third, how are you participating in the preaching of the Word? <clears throat> As we've shown, not everyone can be a, a preacher. However, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, in the first chapter, he talks about, in verse 5, how the gospel came to them. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit in much assurance. And in verse 8, he says, for from you, that's plural, that's all the Christians at Thessalonica, he says, or the, yeah, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward the toward God 
has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And the point is this. These Christians, they carried the message out. They told their friends, co-workers, family, and neighbors about Jesus. They lived lives, I assume, that would bring 1 Peter 3.15 into play, which says that we are to be ready to have a defense for the hope that is within us. And so, our mouths need to be ready. You see, Acts chapter 8 again, it's not either or. It's not that the preacher is the only one who declares the word at all. No, he does that officially, like Philip coming down. But then there's the church, the broad church, speaking, giving testimony, being salt and light as Jesus calls the whole church to be. Maybe you don't want to say anything. You're going to get it wrong. Well, we have paper. We have ink. We have tracks. We have sermon audio. We, we have an innumerable, innumerable amount of sources in our day and time. And then last, since this is true, let us pray together for the gospel's spread and success. I believe, even as Paul will talk about later in Romans, that there are many of God's chosen out there, whether Jew or Gentile, that have not yet heard the gospel message. And so let us be in prayer as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 9. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out labors into his harvest. For how shall they hear, Paul says, without a preacher? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, the exhortation here. We pray that we would be a faithful church, especially in this day and time, that we would not fear but that we would fear you and love you and honor and obey you. In Christ's name, amen.